Amen. Let's go to uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew 18, if you want to follow along in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 978. Matthew 18, or 978. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning, verses 1 through 9. And so, um, so I'll, I'll read it as you follow along, uh, either in your copy of God's Word or you can follow along on the screen behind me, of course. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand causes or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled than or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. This is um, really getting into the fourth major discourse of, of Matthew. We've seen that pattern where Matthew kind of gives a few narratives and then he follows that up with a major speech of Christ, a major sermon of Christ. And then he gives another group of narratives and then he follows that up with a discourse and, and his gospel is really designed uh, with that structure. And so that is what we find here. We are now entering into the fourth major discourse. And you remember all the narratives were involved around the idea of the community of the disciple. Matthew was written as a discipleship manual. So, so just imagine for a moment that you are a brand new Christian in the church of Antioch uh, about 20 or so years after Jesus has been crucified and rose from the grave. And you, are, you, have, you have believed in the gospel. You are now forming a church and, and you are now um, worshiping together. And, and you're, you're, yes, you are Hellenistic Jews. That means you are Jews, but, but you, are more, you live more like a Greek than you do the Jews. And so now you're trying to figure out how are we supposed to live as a Christian? What is this Christian life supposed to look like? How Jewish is our life supposed to look like? And, and all of these questions. And so according to our, our best educated guess, and it, and it is a guess, I want, to, I want to make that clear, but our best educated guess is that Matthew was written to the church of Antioch originally as a discipleship manual for these new Christians. 
And what we have seen throughout is that the entire book is centered around this idea of discipleship and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That is a phrase that we have seen over and over and over again, talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the king and his kingdom, and those kinds of things. And as we come into this section, we have talked about the community, that that it operates differently than the community of the Old Testament. And that we've seen various aspects of what that community is to be, but now the question is, how does that community relate to one another? And that is really the, the major focus of Matthew chapter 18, is how do we relate to one another? How do we build a community? You know, unfortunately for a lot of people, church membership is really nothing more than a name on a roll, and that's it. Church membership is, is really nothing more than, than checking that off, checking off that, that, that box so that in a very mistaken way, they think that that is what will bring them to heaven. As long as, you know, we have these kind of milestones that we are to, to, to go through, and, and that's what gets me there. And yet what we find in Matthew is a very holistic and a very involved picture of the church community and and how we are to respond to one another and what we are to do with one another. And now, as we see here, how we are to relate to one another. And if we are going to build that community, one of the things we have to ask is, is how do we, as a group, come together, gather, and how do we live life together? You saw last week that our relationship to the temple has been severed. The reason why is because the temple is really not the temple anymore. The temple is not the temple. In fact, in in the time of Christ, God's presence was there in the person of Christ. But now the temple is no longer physically present in the person of Christ. It is now present in the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit live? He lives within the church. He lives within our hearts. And so the temple's not even a building anymore, but it is a, it is a collection of people, a covenant community. And so that's why Christ says in verse 26 of 17 that now the sons are free. We talked about that we are free from that temple mentality. And now the question is, is how do we realize that freedom and how we gather together? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 makes this very clear that, that you, do you not know, and, and these yous are plural, unfortunately you can't really see that in English, in modern English, but, uh, but it says, do you not know that all of you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in all of you? And so we are the temple, and the question is, How do we realize that freedom from the temple mentality that we talked about last week? And the answer is in the context of the church. You see, when God designed sanctification, in other words, when God designed for us to grow in holiness, he designed for it to happen in the context of community. In the context of community. Holiness has a certain context in which it grows, in which we learn. And I've told you for an example, as marriage is is one of the greatest ways that God builds our holiness. And I told you that I had all the fruits of the spirit before I was married. And then I got married and they all went away. 
And so I began to get them all back and I just about had it figured out. And then I started having kids. And all of a sudden, I don't have all the fruits of the Spirit anymore. And, and, and that's just what it does. But that's, but that's one of the tools that God uses to grow us into holiness. But the most important tool that he uses is the church, is the covenant community. Not this building, but one another. One another, the community of the saints. And so if we're going to build this community, I think it's not without coincidence that the very first thing that he talks about here, if we are going to build a Christ-like community, then the most and first most essential ingredient beyond salvation, the first essential ingredient, I can't talk, is humility. We must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. And so if we're going to build this covenant community, then we have to practice humility. And that's the first thing this discourse is gonna talk about this morning is that we must humble ourselves. We must practice humility. And how do we do that? Jesus is gonna show us a couple of aspects to that this morning, a couple of ways in which we're going, which we need to practice that. And so beginning in uh, verse one, we see that first and foremost, we must practice humility before God. We must practice humility before God. Look what he says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I wanna stop there for a moment and just imagine again that put yourself in the disciples' place and, and you are one of these 12 and you have seen, just think about over the last few chapters we've looked at, think about Peter's experiences for a moment. Peter walked on water. Peter got to see the transfiguration. Peter was told by Jesus that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Last week we saw Peter even got his taxes paid. What's up with that? You know, it's like he didn't do that for the others, he did it for Peter. He got his taxes paid. And so you can imagine the disciples, uh, the, uh, Peter is, is kind of rising as this natural leader of the group. And, and you can imagine the other 11 don't really like that because they know this guy. They hear this guy. They're thinking, no, he doesn't. He's not up to that. And by the way, don't think for a second that Peter is not involved in this either. Can you imagine what Peter's doing? Hey, buddy, walk on water, then come talk to me. All right, walk on water, then you and I can talk about who's gonna be the leader and who isn't. Until right now, unless you walk on water, you ain't got it, brother. So, so just imagine, that, don't think for a moment that Peter's not involved in this. And so that's naturally leading to an argument that who is gonna be the greatest? I'm gonna be the greatest. No, I'm 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 the greatest. Judas is like, man, hey, look, I carry the money. Obviously, I'm the greatest. And, and I mean, just going on and on, back and forth, back and forth. Good thing that's not on. And Jesus' answer must have surprised them. He, he says in verse two, calling to him a child, calling to him a child, he puts the child in the midst of them. And says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not an answer. It's not a question of who's the greatest. 
It's a question of will you humble yourself? Now, I, I hear people today using this text, and they, and they use it in a couple ways. We talk about a, a childlike faith. And, and when we talk about that, we really have to define what we're talking about because in some people's minds, a, a child is sweet and innocent and precious and, and wonderful. And I am convinced that the people who think that don't have children <laughs> or unless their children are very young to where they don't have their own personalities yet. Uh, maybe that's it. I don't know. But, but if, I mean, it did not take very long for my child to start lying to me. I remember one time, one of my daughters was, uh, was uh, uh, I think she was maybe two or something like that, and Roxanne was turned around doing something, whatever, at the kitchen, and she was back there making faces at her, right? like that, and Roxanne turned around, she's like, sorry, mama, and ran away. <laughs> that sweet, innocent child was making faces at her mama, <laughs> right? And so I don't think that that innocence is really what's involved here because the bottom line is, is if, if you are truly humble, then the last thing you know you are is innocent. The last thing you know you are is innocent. But some people will make it into kind of a naive thing, kind of naivety. They'll say that, you know, I just want to have a childlike faith. It really doesn't matter about what you believe as long as you just love Jesus, long as you just love Jesus, and, and they're very naive about it. Beloved, did you know there, there's more than one Jesus that people preach? And Paul says that if anyone comes to you proclaiming a Jesus other than the Jesus we proclaim to you, they are to be accursed. Our faith cannot be a naive faith. We must practice discernment. We must, we must know the word and test the spirits. Beloved, that's, that's, not, that, that's not being judgmental. That's not uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what the scriptures tell us to do. We must test the spirits because not every spirit out there is from God. And so it's not about naivety. What's the point? The point is, is that back during this day, children had very low status. Very low status. And, and really, if you think about it, a child has no interest in power. A child has no interest in prestige. A child has, is weak, defenseless, vulnerable, helpless. If there's one thing a child knows is that they try to do things independently, but, but it, it does not take too long before they're calling for mom and dad, or someone to help them. And that's what it means, is that to have a humble, childlike faith is to recognize that we are weak, that we are unable to help ourselves, that we're not interested in power, we're not interested in prestige, we're not interested in position, we're not interested in any of those things. All we are interested in is to know Christ and him crucified. And to know that I must come to Christ with my life laid bare before him, recognizing that I am a sinner deserving of his eternal wrath. 
throwing myself at the mercy of him and his grace and finding that there is more than enough for me, that his grace is sufficient. You see, this is an object lesson. He says, unless you become like this child, unless you, unless you turn is what the ESV says. Uh, some of your translations, maybe the NASB says, unless you're converted or unless you, you, you change. And, and what it's trying to catch there is that, is that inner change, that spiritual change that is taking place. Disciples, you are worried about who is the greatest, but unless you repent of that and become humble like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember what Jesus said, the very first characteristic of a Christian is that blessed are the poor in spirit. They recognize, we recognize that we are nothing but beggars before God. Asking him to give us of his riches and find that he is more than willing. He is more than willing. This inward change, when a child is young, they're completely dependent, but naturally as we get older, our desire is to grow up and gain more and more and more independence. We want to be our own people. We want to make our mark on the world. And Jesus says, if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you must turn from that trajectory. You must turn from that direction. To enter the kingdom of heaven means that you must become completely dependent and live for someone else, for Jesus Christ and his glory and his kingdom. And Christ says that the ones who do that, he's answering their question. The ones who do that, they're the greatest. They're the greatest. You see, it's not about rank in heaven. It's not about rank in heaven. It's not about trying to become the greatest. It's about trying to know the one who is the greatest. To know our great savior. But beloved, faith alone saves. Not because faith is a great faith, because it's faith in a great savior. You can have sincere faith in the wrong thing. It happens all the time. Faith alone saves because Christ alone saves. And our faith is placed in him and him alone, by grace alone. So what are some of the ways that we try to achieve greatness or success in our lives? Think about some of the ways that we do this. Perhaps, perhaps you're trying to acquire all the things that you've always wanted. I keep telling Roxanne, my my, uh, I'm well into my midlife crisis, so I'm going to buy my Harley very soon. Just get ready for it. It's coming. And she keeps saying, no, you can have the beard. That's enough. <laughs> so <laughs> what I get. <laughs> Maybe for you is trying to acquire the things or achieve the things that you've always wanted, always dreamed of. Maybe Maybe for you, it's creating that perfect image on social media that people look at you and say, oh, you've got all your life together. Trying to create that perfect picture of your life. Or maybe for you, it's looking on social media and looking at the life that someone else is projecting and you're saying, oh, that's got to be me. That's got to be me. 
You know, maybe you see that, that, that couple, right, that has like seven kids, you know, they're just a few kids short of a TV show. And they're, and they're, and you know, and she posts all, every night she posts this wonderful meal that she puts in front of the table and all of this. And you're looking at that and you're, you're, you know, your kids are hungry and, and you look in the cabinet and you've got macaroni, boxed macaroni and cheese and chicken-like product. You're not even sure that it's chicken or not, but your kids' stomachs are resilient and you know they'll digest it and so you cook it. And you look at the social media image that other people are putting on and you say, oh, if I could only be like that person. You know the teen depression, anxiety, and I mentioned last week teen cutting even is rising astronomically. And Don't think for a second that that has nothing to do with social media. Because we see these lives that people project and it looks so perfect. And that's what we try to achieve for ourselves. That's success. And Jesus says, no, but humble yourselves. Give up all of that. You're not perfect. And it's okay. Because the first criteria for you to come to Christ is that you have to be a sinner. And you have to know that your life is not okay. Beloved, we are not okay. And that's okay. Do you know that? It's okay. Eat the chicken-like product. It's okay. Because we, if you're perfect, then you don't need Christ. So stop trying to be. Look, how do we measure success? Look, look back at the very beginning, Genesis chapter four. Way back in the beginning. Right after Cain had killed Abel, and I won't read all of these verses, but look what happens here. Look at how Cain's line is described. Cain is driven out from the presence of the Lord. And in verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then he built a city and he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. And then as you go down through here, for example, you find in verse 20, you find in verse 20 that Adah bore Jabal and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. What does that mean? That's the way they measured wealth back then. And so they had tents and they measured, they, they, they had much livestock. He was very wealthy, had amassed much wealth. His brother's name was Jabal and he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. These are those who excel in the arts and music. And then Zillah was also born to Baal Cain and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. He was successful in industry. You see, you look, at, you look at all of these people, what do they do? They built cities, they excelled in the arts, they amassed great fortunes, they, they were captains of industry. All the worldly success in the world. And you know the one thing they didn't do is that what Seth's children did, look down in verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again and bore Seth, God appointed for me an offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him in verse 26. Seth was born 
And to Seth was a son born. He called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Beloved, God does not measure success by how much wealth you amass. He does not measure success by how great you are in talents and in the arts. He does not measure success by how industrious you are or a captain of industry you are. All that matters to Christ is whether or not you call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And that is the measure of success in God's eyes. That's all that matters. And you'll see that phrase, that theme, calling upon the name of the Lord all the way through the Bible. Over and over and over again, culminating in Romans 10, 13, for those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, what does our Lord find most important? It's whether or not we're calling on him what is, what is Calvary as a church? What do we consider success? You know, a lot of churches see success as numbers, budgets, productions, the good old days. What are we trying to achieve? What are we looking for? James chapter four, verse two, verses two and three. And we pray for, we pray for Revival. We pray for spiritual renewal. We pray for reformation. But, but James says you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask not. You ask and receive not. Why? Because you ask it wrongly. Spend it on your own passions. Why? Why do we want revival at Calvary? It's so that we can brag about full pews. Is it so that we can be the biggest church in town? That we can put on the biggest productions? That we can have the best praise band? which, by the way, I think we do, so that we can have the best this or that, the best programs, the best this, the best that. Love it. Be careful that we're not asking so that we can use it to fill our own desires, so that we can use that, the Lord's blessings wrongly. And so let us die to self. Let us die to self. Calvary Baptist Church, we need to die to Calvary Baptist Church. And beloved, we need to die to ourselves so that Christ may live through us. So if we're truly humbling ourselves, one of the ways that will show up is in our relationship toward others. And that's what we see in the rest of the text, verses five through nine. Not only humility before God, but humility before others. What does humility toward others look like? He says here in verse five, but whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fashioned around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Quite violent imagery. But what does that look like? It, it, uh, humility in a group setting, humility toward others especially looks like welcoming especially looks like welcoming. The basic idea involves reception or acceptance, loving reception of others who come in. In fact, it's really the same idea as hospitality. It's which when you kind of throw those two words together, it's a, it, this is not always a safe way to do word studies, but, but when you throw those two words together, it actually means love of strangers. That's actually not a bad definition. Love of strangers. 
It's used in general of, of community life. It's especially used in the New Testament to refer to welcoming missionaries and welcoming those who are coming to preach the gospel from out of town and, and stuff like that. But it's, but it's really used in, in just the regular community life of the church. For example, Paul greatly expands this idea in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. For, for lack of time, I won't go there, but that's a great chapter to look at to say how do we welcome others and, and practical ways that, that they work this out. It talks about you know, the things we eat and we don't eat. The, thing, the observance of days. One person observes this day, another person observes that day. And, and really the bottom line is whether we eat or drink or whether we observe or don't observe, we all do it to the Lord. And therefore, who are you to judge another master's servant? And so we are to welcome one another. Christ says, whoever receives this little one receives me. And that is an important concept in the scriptures that, especially in the New Testament that we see, that whatever we do to those whom God is seeking, to whatever we do to God's people, we also do it unto the Lord. Remember when Paul was, was uh, confronted on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? No, he didn't say that. What did he say? Paul, why are you persecuting me? You see, what we do, how we respond to the church is how we respond to Christ. And this important principle is going to come up again in the fifth discourse at the very end. He says, as you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. And the measure of whether we welcome those or not is how much we treat them like Christ. Someone wrote this to me a long time ago. I I can't remember who it was, but, but uh, they asked, uh, Brother Randy, when, when someone comes into the church, do we, do we meet them and do we greet them as if they are Jesus in disguise? You know, that stuck with me over the years. I can't remember who wrote it, but who wrote me that letter, but it stuck with me over the years is when someone comes to our church and when someone's a part of our church and part of our community, when they come to our small groups, when they come to our Sunday schools, do, do we treat them as if they are Christ himself in disguise? What would we do this morning if Christ himself, and he's not going to, okay? Let me make that very clear. But, but well, okay, he might second coming. He's not just gonna... <laughs> Don't watch Daystar, okay? So anyway, um, so, but, but what would we do just hypothetically if, if, you know, not second coming, but if Jesus were to just show up physically this morning, how would we respond to him? Would we not just lay out the red carpet and try to be on our best behavior and try to do everything we can to welcome him and talk to him? Would there not be people just, 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 going around him, wanting to say hi and say, well, we're so glad you're here. You know what? Every time a stranger walks in our church, that's exactly who's coming. 
every time someone walks into our church. I'm, I'm so glad, you know, uh, and I know it's kind of weird, you know, our guest, I know it's kind of weird to be pointed out, but I'm so glad. Uh, Dr. Pat this morning said, I'm so glad we have guests here. We want you to know that we think of you, we love you as Christ himself, and we want you to feel welcome here. We want you to know that we are excited that you are here. You could have gone so many other places. You came here, that's awesome. By the way, we got, a, we got a desk in the back and we've got a free gift for you to show our appreciation and uh, we're so thankful for you. But is that how we're treating people when they come? Is that how we treat one another? And so that's the positive side. But what about the negative side? He says in verse six, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for a millstone be tied around his neck and thrown in the bottom of the sea. What's a millstone? It's that. You see that stone on top of it that was used, a donkey would usually be tied to it and he would, he would walk around the base. I saw that in Capernaum and I, I took a picture of it. That's not my picture. I couldn't actually find my picture, but I got that one from the internet. And, but that's a millstone. And this is not an abstract thing that Jesus is saying here. He says, look, if you cause one of my little ones to sin, it would be better for you if you took that, tied it around your neck, and jumped into the Sea of Galilee. Why is he being so, I mean, that's pretty serious, isn't it? It's pretty serious. Why is he, why is he doing that? Well, first of all, you have to understand what he means by causes to sin, some of you, I know you're using the old King Jim and it's, uh, the old King James, and it says, um, uh, whoever offends, right? And, and during the time when it was translated, that was a good way to translate it, but, but offend today is really too soft. It, it really just means like an emotional distaste or, or, uh, or something like that, but no real harm done. It says it causes them to stumble over you. In other words, it causes them to lose, to abandon their faith. What's the best example of that? Well, we've already talked about Galatians 1. Paul says that if anyone comes to you, if, if it's us, if it's an angel, it doesn't matter who it is, but if they come to you and they preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Don't have anything to do with those guys. And it's so strong that he even backs it up. He says, if we've said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. By the way, English translations tend to be very polite. But that word accursed, what he's actually talking about, he says, let him go to hell. That's what it means. That's what it means. Uh, Paul tells Timothy at the end of Timothy, Chapter one, verses six, uh, chapter six, verses 20 and 21. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He goes on and says, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. We've got to be on guard of that. In other words, when, if we are humble toward others, we will do our best to make sure that we are not causing people to stumble in their faith. Now, truth sometimes is offensive. And we're not saying don't be faithful to the truth. We're not saying that. Sometimes the truth is offensive because there are people out there who hate the truth. And so it's going to offend them. That's okay. But that doesn't give us the right to be offensive. 
That doesn't give us the right to be ugly about it. And some people are just ugly about it. And they, and they run people out of churches because they're just so mean. You run into a church, you run into a town nowadays and there'll be a church over here and it's called Church of Harmony. This one over here is called Church of Unity. And the reason they're called that is because they were the same church 50 years ago, but they got so mean and vindictive they couldn't get along with each other and so they split. You know it. You know it. So what about in the church? Jesus will talk about in verse 10, despising those who come. Verse 15, refusing to forgive one another. Just discouragement. Do we discourage people from growing in their faith? Unfair criticism. Fathers, do you provoke your children to wrath? In the church, is it lack of care for the people, either from the people themselves or from leadership? By the way, I'm so thankful to Calvary. We do well in this. Uh, very seldom do I go to the hospital and someone from the church hasn't already been there. That, that's awesome. That's a great thing. Uh, I have people who apologize to me for that. They're like, you know, I'm sorry, pastor, I got there first. I just couldn't wait. I was like, why in the world are you saying sorry about that? That is nothing to be sorry about. That is awesome. I love that. Pushing personal agendas and, and looking to push other people around so that we can push ourselves forward in the limelight. And of course, this is all in the news today and it, and it happens. Abuse. Abuse. And Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it is better for you to tie that millstone around your head and jump into the bottom of the sea. It's better. This is so serious. Jesus says, look, it's impossible that that offenses will come, but woe to those by whom it comes. Just because it's impossible not to be offended in this world doesn't give us the right to do it. And so, so how do we avoid this? Two illustrations, and they're basically saying the same thing. We read them, verse eight. If your, right or hand, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse nine, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Of course, he's not talking literal here, but what does he mean? In other words, what we call in the biblical counseling world, what we call radical amputation. In other words, that there is, there is no action that is too radical to avoid sin. There is no action that is too radical to avoid sinning, either against God or someone else. You know, I've had guys before, they were struggling so much online I've had guys before give me their, and I did not ask them to do this, okay? I wanna make that very clear. This was their choice. But they, they gave me access to their online bank account, and they said, I want you to check it, and if you see any charges that look suspicious, I want you to call me and ask me about it. You know why? Because they hated the sin more than they loved their privacy. Now, I did not ask them to do that, and I would never ask you to do that. But what I am saying is that there is no action that is too radical 
to avoid sin. There is no action too radical to avoid sinning against others. So we've seen that we need to practice that humility. We need to practice, practice humility before God. We need to practice humility before others. Beloved, humility is, is not self-loathing. It's not self-abasement. You know, the joke where uh, the guy got the most humble man of the year award and then they took it away from him because he accepted it. You know, it's, it's, that, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not, it's not self-loathing. It's not self-abasement. It's selfless. It's selflessness. And that is the number two ingredient. The number one ingredient is that you must know Christ as your Savior. But the number two ingredient is that we must practice humility if we're going to have fellowship, Christ-like fellowship in the church. Remember what we said last week, the quickest way to destroy community is to start insisting on our rights. And that's true in a church, that's true in a family, that's true in a nation, that's true in a community. It's a real challenge. And so how do we cultivate that? Just real quick, number one, think often of God's perfections. Sometimes they're called attributes. But think often of God's perfections. David says in Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens and the stars and all the wonders your hands have made, what is man that you would think so highly of him? Beloved, you can't think about God and his perfections often without seeing yourself in relation to them. Number two, think often of Christ's work for you. I think in Philippians 2, beginning in verse Three and following that, that Christ, even though he existed in the, he was the very form of God. He was God himself, but he did not consider that something that he had to hold on to, that he had to grasp, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, became obedient even to death, even the death of a cross. And Paul says, let that mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you also. So think of Christ often. Think of his work for you. Think of God's perfections. Think of Christ's work for you often. And finally, think often of how we might serve others. Everyone and often. I've already mentioned Matthew 25. It says that what you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you've also done to me. Christ commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. And, and John even says that the measure of how much we love others is how much we obey and love Christ. I ran across this quote and uh, I find that it was very interesting from C.S. Lewis, which just about all of C.S. Lewis quotes are interesting. He's kind of like Spurgeon. He's just, he can put gold into so much few words, but Talking about the home life, he says, if the home is to be the means of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional tyranny of the, of the most selfish member. That's powerful. And you see, if the church is to be the means of grace that it is meant to be, then there must be obedience to Christ alone. 
The opposite to that is not freedom. It's tyranny to the group's most selfish member. And so you'll notice in all of these things, did you notice that? Think often of God, think often of Christ, think often of others. What's missing there? Who are you not thinking of? Yeah. Think often of God. Think often of Christ. And think often of others. You cannot gaze upon the glory of God in Christ and all their perfections and come away with a high view of yourself. Not if you're doing it properly. So one of the things we do in our church to help with this is we hold monthly communion. We, we do it often so that we can have that visual presentation of the gospel. The communion does for your taste and for your other senses what preaching does for your ears. We commune together and we remember that we all come together through the sacrifice and the grace of Christ. And in the words of the reformers, we, we feed on Christ. We, he nourishes us through faith. So beloved, if you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ as your savior, we, we're, we're not gonna ask you to leave. We want you to stay and we, and we want you to observe what we're doing. And we want you to ask questions. This doesn't have to be a quiet time. We want you to ask questions. Kids, ask your parents questions. And parents, don't shush them. Answer their questions. It's okay. And if, and if one of our guests comes and asks you a question, don't shoo them away. Talk to them. Answer their questions. Because we want this to be a time of the gospel. And so let's prepare our hearts for that now. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the truths that have been presented. And Father, if there's one here who does not know you as Savior, I pray that through this demonstration this morning, they will begin to ask questions. That they will ask what all of this means. And Father, as we remember Christ, his body and his blood that was shed for us, May you once again nourish our faith and strengthen us for the month ahead. I want to ask our servants to come on forward this morning.